focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our Friday reporters in Changana and Hong Seungyeon. Guys, welcome back. Good, Good evening. evening. Good evening to you guys. We're going to start things off with the last national audit of the 21st National Assembly of the year uh, coming to a close on this Friday with comprehensive audits by eight standing committees. Hannah, you're going to start us off with the latest news all the way from Yeoido. What do you have for us? Sure. Now, the National Assembly will hold comprehensive audits by eight standing committees, including the National Defense Committee, the National Policy Committee, and the Strategy and Finance Committee. Now, at the National Defense Committee, the ruling and opposition parties are expected to continue their debate over issues, such as the removal of the bust of revered independence fighter Hong Bom-do from its grounds, allegations of external pressure involved in the investigation of the tragic death of a young Marine soldier, and the defense research and development budget. In a comprehensive audit of the Ministry of Strategy and Finance and the Bank of Korea, the ruling and opposition parties are expected to clash over the Moon administration's manipulation of statistics, tax revenue shortfalls, and R&D budget cuts. And in its comprehensive audit of the uh, Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, and Transport, the National Agency for Administrative City Construction and the Semangam Development Authority, the Democratic Party is expected to raise the issue of the Seoul Yangpyeong Expressway project again. And the ruling PPP is poised to fight back against the DP with the former Moon administration's alleged real estate price manipulation. And the inspections of the 14 standing committees will wrap up today, but the inspections of the three committees, including the House Steering Committee, the Intelligence Committee, and the Gender Equality and Family Committee, will continue continue until the 8th of next month. Now, uh, we're going to move on here. The ruling People Power Party having launched the Innovation Committee last week in an attempt to kind of reform the party and uh, regain the public trust after the uh, huge loss in the recent local by-election uh, that we talked about there. They were saying that there certainly is a huge wake-up call for the ruling People Power Party, especially given the fact that it could be maybe a barometer of things to come in next April's general election. Uh, we talked about Dr. Inyo Han uh, being appointed as the chair. Uh, you had 12 members being appointed to this particular committee and trying to reform uh, the ruling party. Uh, Sing, let's get more on this. Sure. Uh, following a defeat in a local by-election in Seoul, the People Power Party, or PPP, established the Innovation Committee last week in an effort to modernize the organization and to win back the public's trust. So on Monday, PPP made the decision to designate In Yohan as the chair of the committee. This is the first time any non-ethnic Korean citizen has been appointed to lead such a committee. The PPP said it chose In to lead the committee as he has deep understanding and keen insight that would resolve regionalism and promote unity among people. Now, In Yohan, naturalized Korean, is a medical school professor at Yonsei University. Uh, he promised to transform the PPP and promote national unity. And uh, the committee members consist of seven women and six men, including one sitting lawmaker and 11 outside figures, such as a former TV anchor and a startup executive. So In Yohan said uh, the committee tried to bring in as many people from outside the party, taking into consideration uh, women and young generations. 
That's right. Uh, again, that was one of kind of the pledge that uh, President Yoon Sung-yeol had during his uh, campaign pledge uh, before he won the presidential election last year was that he was going to try to make uh, the, the cabinet members a lot younger, uh, kind mm-hmm. of aiming for the younger generation out there. Obviously, that hasn't happened, but it seems like with this latest community, you are seeing younger and a more uh, broader diversity in the gender there. So, the PPP's Innovation Committee, uh, they held their first meeting today on Friday. So tell us more about that. Sure. Uh, the Innovation Committee, led by In Yohan, held its first meeting at the People Power Party headquarters on Friday. In said that the committee's philosophy of innovation is sacrifice, integration, and diversity. He also expressed his belief that innovation stems from considering the viewpoint of the people and giving them a voice. So he is committed to using his job as a means of communicating the committee members' good intentions and objectives to the people. However, the party's views on the Innovation Committee are mixed. Now, Ton Aram, member of the PPP who previously announced that he had rejected the proposal for an Innovation Committee member, predicted that it would be difficult for the committee to produce substantive results since there is excessive inter- intervention by the presidential office in party affairs. On the other hand, there are voices coming from the party leadership saying that it is meaningful that many people from the metropolitan area who are sensitive to changes in public sentiment are included in the committee and that they are looking forward to the innovation plan that will be released in the future. Now, in the meantime, uh, certainly a big issue moving forward. Uh, one of the topic of discussions that we had uh, in number of segments in our program, whether it be a different view, we had it on focus on headline. Uh, let's see, we had it in uh, one other segment that I can't remember, but uh, pension system is something that needs a great deal of reform. Uh, This is something that the UN administration has mentioned as well. Uh, This time, the government proposing a national pension reform plan that lacks, well, specific numeric reforms, such as the premium rate and the income replacement rate, which refers to the ratio of the pension amount to the average income during the pension enrollment period. But as the government has promoted national pension reform as a national task, but failed to come up with a specific reform plan, it seems like it's inevitable to point out that it lacks the will to reform the pension so far, according to some of the pundits. Uh, Hannah, fill us in on this. Sure. Now, the government's reform proposal emphasizes financial stability rather than increasing coverage. So while uh, indicating that premium rate increases are inevitable, the cautious phrase adjustment review was used in relation to the income replacement ratio, which was actually an indicator of premium coverage. So the Ministry of Health and Welfare unveiled the 5th National Pension Comprehensive Operation Plan on Friday, which is today, and the Comprehensive Operation Plan, which was deliberated by the National National Pension Review Committee. And they said that they will submit this to the National Assembly by the end of this month after being reviewed by the Cabinet and approved by the President. The National Assembly will take over from the government and discuss the reform plan through a special committee on pension reform. And the Comprehensive Operation Plan emphasized the need to increase premiums without directly setting a target number, such as how high premiums should go. And on the other hand, the nominal 
income replacement ratio in relation to guarantees is cautiously described, saying it will continue to be reviewed in conjunction with structural reform discussions within the framework of multi-layered old-age income security, including basic pensions and retirement pensions. And in the debate on how to reform the national pension system, there has been a debate between the fiscal stabilization theory, which actually advocates uh, raising the premium rate to make the system more financially sustainable, and the guarantee enhancement theory, which advocates raising the income replacement ratio to make it more secure. And the report focuses on the fiscal stabilization theory. Now, the weight of the reforms was tilted in favor of reforms that give more over the reforms that take more. And the ministry said it did not propose specific reforms to the premium rate and income replacement ratio, saying it was providing direction for a broader discussion through the public consultation process. What says that we considered that the National Assembly's Special Committee on Pension Reform is discussing the structural reform, and we plan to determine the specific level through public discussion with the Assembly. And this was them passing the ball to the National Assembly. It's very complicated right now. The the, the pension system has long been a very uh, controversial issue, Mm -hmm. and I think we mentioned that although I I don't have the exact figure as what the basic pension uh, amount is for the the retirees, Mm -hmm. but what they're saying, so currently it's 9%, right? And so I'm paying into the national pension system. It's 9% right now. They're trying to raise it to uh, 15%, which Mm -hmm. means they're going to raise it up to six percentage points. Mm -hmm. But the criticism was that, well, then in the end, it's going to be all the people that are getting closer to the retirement age that's Mm going to be benefiting, whereas the younger generation is going to be paying more. And who knows what happens later on? I mean, it could easily Mm -hmm. be depleted. And so one of the things I think uh, that the uh, the Ministry of uh, Health and welfare have raised is that for the age group, it's going to be all based on age group is what's mm-hmm. going to happen. So if you're closer to the retirement age, mm-hmm. and let's say uh, you're like 58 or you're, you're, you're let's say you're 60 years mm-hmm. old, right? And so the way that they're going to raise the six percentage points is every year they'll move up one percentage right. points. Uh, whereas for the younger generations, like all of us here, uh, they would spread the six percentage points over a longer period of time so mm-hmm. that the increase uh, in the premium rate that we have to pay is going to be smaller. Whereas mm-hmm. for the older generation, they'll have to pay a, a, a mm-hmm. larger increase. So all of this is going to be, you know, not set on stone. Again, there's no numbers given. There's no clear-cut uh, figures here. Mm-hmm. They've announced this plan, and there's nothing here. Nyan says only 9%. It's 35%. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so, Ooh. but that's the thing, right? That's the big trade-off is are you willing to give up 35% of your pay so that you're going to be, uh, I guess, uh, have better retirement uh, have more money coming into you every month once you retire? Or do you want to pay less into the pension system and maybe invest that money into something else? Uh, and the other, of course, uh, criticism is that, well, 35%, if Korea has to pay 35%, that's going to be all around. And so even people who are making bare minimum, mm-hmm. how are they able to afford 35% would be the criticism. But even with the whole 15% right now, they're saying it's too high. Right. Uh, but uh, considering, again, the fiscal soundness of the current pension system right now, just like the uh, the ministry said, it's inevitable that they have to continue to raise it. and. One of the things I think they said was if they do raise it to 15%, uh, the seniors will then get paid 400,000 Korean won per month. That's going to be the basic. 
uh, as opposed to something like 250,000, I believe is currently what they're getting paid, something around that ballpark. So slight increase, but is it worth it is the big thing. We'll get more on this. Let's move on here. The National Fire Agency announcing on Wednesday that during the forthcoming Halloween weekend that we have coming up, right, especially with the one-year anniversary of the mm -hmm. tragic incident over in Itaewon. They're, they're going to have strict crowd control measures put in place in four of the busiest entertainment districts in the country. This, of course, including Itaewon and Hongdae. Singyeon, let's get more on this. Sure. Uh, strict crowd control me measures will be put in place just as South Korea is getting ready for its first Halloween weekend since the tragic crowd crush that happened in a back alleyway in Seoul's Itaewon neighborhood last year, killing 159 Halloween partygoers. So according to the fire agency, starting Friday through next Thursday, a number of stringent crowd control measures will be put into place in the Seoul neighborhoods of Itaewon, Hongdae, and Myeongdong, as well as in Dongseongno in the southeast city of uh, Daegu. The approaching Halloween weekend is predicted to draw the largest crowds to the four districts. Now, an emergency management of, of officer will be set, sent to each of the four locations as part of the measures. According to officials, nighttime patrols will be stepped up to prevent any accidents and command stations will remain operational in certain regions. Also, there will be more emergency rescuers and ambulances stationed in the congested places in order to prepare against any emergency situation. So the fire agency also plans to reallocate uh, hospital beds for emergency patients to make it easier to carry the patients in case of the safety accident. So since last week, from what I understand, uh, fire authorities have also been conducting fire safety inspections at multi-use facilities in areas where large crowds are expected to gather uh, for the upcoming Halloween celebrations, from what I understand, right? Right. Uh, fire authorities have been inspecting multi-use buildings for fire safety uh, since last week, particularly those located in locations where Halloween events are expected to draw sizable crowds. So in order to enable easy evacuation in the case of an emergency, officials had illegal installations at such facilities removed during the inspections and also cleared all emergency exit uh, routes. Now, the National Fire Agency's uh, Commissioner General, Nam Hwa Young, asked the public to refrain from dressing up as firefighters or police officers for Halloween in order to facilitate quick rescue efforts in the event of an emergency. And the agency also plans to keep up the ongoing communication networks with other governmental organizations in charge of rescue operations, including the police and local governments, as well as the commercial communities and the affected areas. So so one of the things that we talked about uh, yesterday with Professor Song Seryan was that you know the big question of should people go out to Itaewon to celebrate Halloween, especially given the fact that it's only been a year since the very tragic incident that took the lives of some 159 people. Uh, but one of the things that he said was, well, it's not really the celebration that's the big problem. It was at the time a lack of preparation. And uh, of course, the government can argue that because it wasn't an organized event, that they mm -hmm. had no kind of priority to put in all these places. But now they've learned, right? Now they've learned and they're putting all these uh, you know, safety measures in place and, and so forth. I do understand that they're also going to be using 
using some sort of like AI system to to make sure that there's uh, the crowd is is not too uh dense in certain areas and so forth and if they feel like the crowd is getting a little bit too, uh, too much on the dangerous side automatically alert the uh, the authorities and so forth so all of these measures in place and we've long had a history of large crowds gathering whether it be for world cup or for uh, demonstrations and so forth as long as there are measures in place uh, it should be safe let's move on here south korean prime minister Han Duk su is going to be embarking on a five nation tour of africa and europe next week this in order to rally support for south korea's bid to host the 2030 world expo uh, and uh, strengthen bilateral ties hannah let's get more on this sure now han will depart sunday to travel to malawi togo Cameroon, Norway, and Finland over seven days in a last-minute pitch to win support for Korea's bid to bring the expo to its southeastern city, Busan. And uh, the host of the mega-event will be decided by a vote among member states of the Bureau International Day Expositions in late November. So Han will be the first South Korean leader-level official to visit the three African countries since the two sides established diplomatic relations, according to his office. And through his visits, Han plans to establish a foundation for closer ties with African nations under South Korea's vision to become a global pivotal state and boost interest in the inaugural South Korea-Africa Summit to be held in South Korea next year. Now, on November 2nd to 3rd, Han will visit Norway and Finland, where he will seek to strengthen value-based diplomacy with Europe and explore ways to enhance cooperation on economic security issues, including climate change and supply chains. Of course, uh, the pundits are saying uh, there, it's, it's a four-way race right now, but mm -hmm. I think they're saying at this moment it's more of a two-way race. It's going to be either between Riyadh or Busan. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Rome and uh, one of the uh, Ukrainian cities, I forget which uh, city all of a sudden, but uh, I think that city is kind of like last. They were saying a couple of months ago that in order, it was uh, Riyadh, Rome, and, and Busan. And mm -hmm. so Busan wasn't even second there, uh, but they've been climbing up with a lot of these uh, support that they've been getting from all these uh, meetings that they had. But so far it's Riyadh in first place. And hopefully with all these meetings and they could garner enough support in Busan, uh, we'll finally get the, the hosting rights for the 2030 World Expo. Uh, in the meantime, another issue that we've been following very carefully has been the release of uh, wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear, di uh, nuclear power plant. Uh, TEPCO's announced a plan on Thursday that the third phase of the release of the water will begin on November 2nd. Singh, let's get more on this. Sure. Uh, Tokyo Electric Power Company, Te or TEPCO, said it intends to discharge about 7,800 tons of the wastewater from 10 tanks between November 2nd to the 20th. TEPCO has said it will carry out four rounds of releases in the current fiscal year ending March of 2024. So the first round of uh, round of the discharge was held from August 24th to September 11th, and the second round was held from October 5th to October 23rd. Each round also saw the emission of about 7,800 tons. Also, as you know, the Fukushima Daiji uh, plant suffered a triple meltdown in the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, and water used to cool molten fuel has been mixing with rain and groundwater. Uh, so the accumulated water is being treated to remove most radioactive substances, but still contains tritium, and the treated water is stored in more than 1,000 tanks. Uh, the plant operator dilute, dilutes and tr uh, treats the water to get 
the tritium levels down to approximately one-seventh of the HWO's drinking water recommendation level before releasing into the sea. The WHO. The yeah. WHO <laughs> what is what say? it is. HWO. HWO might be a completely different organization. <laughs> I don't know which one it is. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I want to kind of also cover a very unfortunate news over there because two of the workers at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant were hospitalized uh, after being accidentally sprayed with liquid laced with radioactive material is what the reports are seeing. So what exactly happened there, Sun-yeon? Uh So the incident occurred, occurred on Wednesday when a group of workers was cleaning the piping at the Advanced Liquid Processing System, or the ALPS. The ALPS is a wastewater filtering facility that is key to the treatment of the radioactive wastewater that accumulates on the plant and its ongoing discharge into the sea. So four workers were cleaning the piping when a drainage hose suddenly came off. Uh, they were splashed with a tainted liquid waste, which was not the wastewater running inside the system. Now, TEPCO confirmed that all four were wearing full face masks, and test results showed none of them had had ingested radioactive particles. Unfortunately, uh, none have shown any health uh, issues. We're going to move on to another issue that has made the headlines uh, all throughout the day. Uh, Chinese Former Chinese Premier Li Keqiang uh, passed away past midnight after suffering a heart attack uh, while in Shanghai. Uh, this according to the Chinese state broadcaster CCTV on Friday. Uh, he was just 68 years old. Uh, we were also talking about how Li Keqiang had only held his position for such a short period of time. But nevertheless, uh, Hannah, let's get more on this. Sure. Now, CCTV said that comrade Li Keqiang suddenly developed heart disease on the 26th and passed away in Shanghai just 10 minutes past midnight. And they also added that we will issue an uh, obituary soon. So the state-run uh, Xinhua news agency said that Li's cause of death was a heart attack, and people commenting on Chinese social media expressed their shock and condolences at the news. Li was actually uh, generally uh, considered relatively economic reform-minded and had close ties with former President Hu Jintao. That sometimes put Li at odds with Hu's successor, Chinese President Xi Jinping. As Li ended his run as premier, Xi stayed on for an unprecedented third term as president and installed loyalist Li Chang, former Shanghai Party secretary, as the new premier this year. And in 2020, Li Keqiang famously told reporters that more than 600 million people in China still had a monthly income of barely 1,000 yuan, which is about $137, which he pointed out was not enough to rent a room in a medium-sized Chinese city. Li also inspired the unofficial Li Keqiang Index, which uses electricity consumption, rail cargo, and bank lending as a proxy for the economy. The accuracy of China's official economic figures is widely doubted. While Premier Li pushed for promoting trade cooperation between China and other countries, as well as removing restrictions on the flow of people and goods within China, he also advocated for mass entrepreneurship and innovation. And in 2015, Li delivered a government work report
report that launched the Made in China 2025 strategy, which is an effort to build up domestic tech prowess and drew widespread attention from the U.S. and Europe. Li uh, became a member of the highest circle of power, the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee, Politburo uh, Standing Committee, in 2007, according to state media. And Li was vice premier from 2008 to 2013. Speaking of China, the other big news is uh, out of Washington. Uh, we talked about how all throughout this year, some of the top U.S. officials have been moving uh, or traveling to Beijing for talks with their counterparts. We talked about a number of times that U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's made a trip. Janet Yellen's made a trip. Uh, this time, we had the top diplomat of China, Wang Yi, uh, traveling over to the United States to hold talks with his counterpart in uh, Anthony Blinken. Um, and during their talks, uh, I believe the talks happened at the State Department building. I uh, talked about ways to work together on issues like the war in Ukraine, uh, not to mention the rising tension in the Middle East. Uh, they also discussed how to mend the strained bilateral ties between the two major economic powers over issues like technology and security. So, yeah, let's get more on this. Sure. Uh, the talks between the Secretary of State Antony Blinken and China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi came amid speculation that Washington and Beijing are finalizing plans for a meeting between President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which will be held in San Francisco from November 11th to uh, 17th. Now, Wang emphasized that the significance of discussion, adding that the United States and China had disagreements and differences, but important common interests. Uh, he noted that cooperation between the two countries is, is necessary to stabilize bilateral relations. So last November, Biden and Xi met for the first time in person on the sidelines of the Group of 20 Summit in uh, Bali. Indonesia. Uh, and in recent months, the Biden administration has been seen uh, pursuing improved relations with Beijing as part of its effort to de-risk uh, the bilateral relationship. Blinken, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and um, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo all paid high-level visits to China as part of their efforts. Uh, the U.S. outreach to China came after a period of tensions prompted by uh, China's alleged spy balloon launch over the U.S. earlier this year. Now, what's also quite interesting to note here is that the talks are not over. Uh, I believe uh, Friday local time, Friday U.S. time, uh, the two top diplomats are going to sit down for talks once again. And so the speculation is, despite the fact that they had uh, discussions take place on Thursday local time, they're going to continue this discussion and that they're probably going to be talking about a possible, again, Biden-Xi Jinping summit uh, in San Francisco is what the, uh, the speculation is. And it is very rare for... I mean, for uh, uh, what is it, top diplomats to hold talks over a span of two uh, two days. But again, I mean, considering the fact that all the things that the U.S. and China have gone through over the years, uh, it's also not kind of uh, surprising. Guys, uh, let's now go on over to the Middle East. Uh, we had some uh, shocking, or actually, I guess uh, not really surprising in some sense, I guess uh, some of the experts had uh, anticipated that this would happen. Uh, Israel is saying that the Hamas used weapons made by North Korea and Iran uh, during the October 7th attack. You have Tehran expressing willingness to get involved with the hostage negotiations, uh, but they also stressed that the Palestinian prisoners in Israel should be included 
in a swap deal here. A lot of developments happening over in the Middle East. Hannah, let's get the latest there. Sure. Now, the Israeli military says North Korea and Iranian weapons were used by Hamas during its attack on Israel on October 7th. And authorities on Thursday put weapons they say were used by Hamas during the attack, which included mines, rocket-propelled grenades, and drones. An Iranian mortar uh, launcher and a North Korean-made grenade launcher were part of a haul of weapons recovered, with an official saying a total of 20% of all weapons used by Hamas during the attacks were from North Korea and Iran. Iran's foreign minister told the uh, United Nations on Thursday that Tehran is ready to play a role in mediating talks to release Israeli hostages from Hamas along with Qatar and Turkey. However, he said in order for such negotiations to take place, Israel must be prepared to release 6,000 Palestinians held in its prisons. And meanwhile, according to Russian media outlet TASS, a delegation from Hamas visit Moscow on Thursday for talks on the release of hostages, including Russian citizens that the militant group is currently holding in Gaza. The Kremlin said Iran's deputy foreign minister is in Moscow to hold talks with Russian officials to discuss the ongoing conflict and find ways to stabilize the situation. And Israel slammed the visit by the Hamas delegation, saying that Russia should expel them from their country while criticizing Russia for inviting them. Yeah, I mean, some of the, the, the words that uh, have been used by by Israel in regards to that uh, visit uh, was was not pretty. And if you've noticed, again, you have to, when it comes to following the news on what's going on between Israel and Hamas, uh, the most important thing is to find the most neutral news outlet. And, and that's been very difficult as of late. And so if you go to like, for example, like I, I've noticed uh, uh, reports on the Times of Israel, of course, the <laughs> Times of Israel is going to be very much pro-Israel. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they don't call them militant groups, they call them uh, terrorists, right? Mm. And so one of the things that I believe Israel said in regards to the Hamas uh, delegations that went over to Russia, they said they've invited a bunch of terrorists and they should immediately expel them, uh, is what they said, I believe. But uh, uh, things are really boiling up. I think the other news that came out uh, was uh, in regards to a number of uh, high-ranking Hamas officials uh, that were killed. And uh, Israel has made that, I believe, uh, one of the uh, Hamas uh, officials was uh, second-in-command for Hamas's intelligence, uh, and another being uh, the the commander in the rocket unit, uh, also killed in this. And so they're continually, continuously showing that these attacks, these air raids in Gaza, are all against uh, for, uh, in trying to eliminate the Hamas uh, militants and the high-ranking officials. But unfortunately, of course, uh, we have also been seeing uh, innocent lives being taken as well. Uh, nevertheless, speaking of Israel, the Israel Defense Forces confirming on Thursday that it accounted carried out a brief ground raid to strike several military targets, sending tanks and troops into northern Gaza overnight. But uh, we do have news that the Israeli forces carried out a second ground raid into Gaza. This was right before the show began, uh, struck targets on the outskirts of Gaza City. Uh, Singhan, let's get the latest. Sure. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu admitted the planning for a ground invasion in a televised speech on Wednesday night, but he did not elaborate, saying that the timing will be decided by agreement among the government's secret war cabinet. However, Israel carried out the first attack in Gaza a few hours before Netanyahu 
Netanyahu's speech in spite of reports that the Joe Biden administration had advised Israel to postpone a ground offensive for a few days so that the United States could finish extending a defensive systems to guarantee the security of American personnel stationed in the Middle East. President Biden has frequently stressed the need to postpone a ground offensive in order to protect the hostages held by Hamas. However, the military said Friday that Israel forces backed by fighter jets and drones carried out a second ground raid into Gaza and struck targets on the outskirts of Gaza City. Also, U.S. warplanes, meanwhile, struck targets in eastern Syria that the Pentagon said were linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard after a string of attacks on U.S. forces by Iran-backed fighters, adding uh, to the already high regional tensions fueled by the three-week-old Gaza war. Now, uh, again, armed conflict, right? Uh, The remarks by Biden is kind of iffy because he's also kind of come out i think there was a lot of kind well israel has been very upset with a number of organizations and countries as well i mean one of the things that uh, israel has been very upset with some of the comments made by u.n secretary general uh, antonio guterres again despite the fact that i think a lot of people are saying that his remarks were very much neutral i don't think there was anything that sided with one over the other uh but when it comes to biden's Biden came out saying that well you know we really didn't tell Israel to hold off on the, uh, the the ground offensive, but 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 I think it's important that we need to not only put an aid into uh, Gaza, but also uh, we need to deal with the the hostage situation if if Israel wants to is I think so he's playing it carefully right now and I think Israel is kind of in a situation where they know that the humanitarian situation in Gaza is dire. And they can't just sit back and keep applauding what Israel is doing. But on the same, on the, uh, on the flip side, Israel and United States close allies, and so they can't really say a whole lot of negative things in regards to this. So, the whole hostage situation is going to be uh, something that we have to take a look at. And again, Iran's come out saying that uh, they're working with uh, Qatar and also Egypt, but. Again, the release of the Palestinians uh, in the Israeli prison is going to be the other thing here. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the consensus right now is that all of this is maybe a foreshadowing of maybe what's to come over the weekend. Uh, A lot of people are saying that there is going to be a ground offensive Mm -hmm. that's going to be finally launched. And uh, we'll continue to keep a close tab on this even over the weekend and get more into that uh, on our Monday's episode. Nevertheless, guys, thank you very much for your reports. Have a safe weekend, and we'll see you guys again next week. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.